Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to talk about organic and sustainable agriculture on the program today, the first of a two-part series. We'll have the second part on Thursday. Uh, today we have uh, with us Jennifer Reeve, who's Associate Professor in the Department of Plant Soils and Climate at Utah State University in the Department of Agriculture. She's originally from England. Uh, she earned a Bachelor's of Science in Ecology from University of Sheffield, followed by a Master's and PhD in Soil Science from Washington State University. And uh, teaching interests are agroecology and organic farming. Uh, a while back, she uh, gave a Science Unwrapped uh, talk called What is Organic and Sustainable Agriculture Anyway? And uh, so welcome to the program. Thank you. So I want to jump in here uh, kind of with uh, your starting point in this presentation, and we maybe don't give regular, quote-unquote, agriculture mm -hmm. its due, has been a wild success story. It certainly has. You know, uh, the Green Revolution, uh, combination of genetic traits and um, fertilizer agronomic improvements and uh, raised yields uh, incredibly. And... Uh, and so that has staved off widespread concerns about food shortages and that were present and uh, resulted in all the abundance that we see today. Mm -hmm. and, and we mustn't forget that because I think that there's a lot of, when we talk about sustainable agriculture, we, um, we often focus on the negative, right? Because there have been, I would say, unintended consequences of this success. Whenever mm -hmm. you enrich a system uh, with lots of fertilizers, it's going to become leaky, right? And mm -hmm. so you have runoff and you're going to have eutrophication of, of, of streams and lakes and, and the, the negative effect on fish. Uh, you might have toxic effects of the pesticides and negative effects on wildlife. And uh, people notice this and um, it was particularly in the 1960s with the publication of Silent Spring, Rachel Carson saying, look, birds are dying, <laughs> right? It's because of pesticides. And, and, and that's when sustainable agriculture really came to the forefront and organic too. And, and so now we have this really difficult situation. What do we do? You know, we have, we need to produce food. We need to feed ourselves. That's what agriculture is for. And we definitely don't want to advocate people starving, right? And at the same time, how can we do that in a manner that uh, is sustaining? And, and that means that we don't run out of the resources we depend on, including food, uh, soil, right? And including uh, water and nutrients and uh, that we don't contaminate the environment to which it becomes a problem for other people, maybe living downstream. And so how do we solve this? Mm. So uh, I want to uh, briefly set aside everything but yield. Mm -hmm. Not wise to set aside those things, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> you, you know, you got the environment, you got water quality, soil mm -hmm. quality, et cetera, et cetera. But you, if you set aside all that, um, agriculture as it's going today, big ag, mm -hmm. um, would, would, would that be sustainable in that very narrow sense? You, enough yield to, to feed a growing population. Well, even in given our current consumption patterns, there's there's a question, right? You know, we uh, many people say we actually need to increase production by about fifty percent, 
in order to feed the projected growth in the population. And that is huge. And, uh, and if we're going to truly do that, that's certainly going to mean pulling out any kind of option that, that we can come up with, technological, and, and at the same time do it in a way that doesn't um, um, cause further environmental problems. Yeah. So that is, you know, there's definitely a, a, an ongoing challenge. And, and that is where the, the GMO debate comes into this because yeah. people would um, argue that the GMOs might be uh, a tool at least to be able to push production even further. Well, let's talk about it. Uh, GMO, a hot topic, hotly debated, as you know. Right. Um, is, is that a good tool, bad tool, neutral tool? In terms of the technology, it's neutral. I think most technologies are neutral. Uh, the the concerns of whether uh, GMOs specifically are toxic for us, I think that's largely not been proven. Um, whether or not it's problematic or not depends how that tool is utilized, right, as, as is often the case. And so um, if, for example, we are... Uh, just you you know we using uh, a genetic modification to grow the same crop across massive <laughs> acreages right corn or soybeans we're, we're enabling a kind of um monocropping that is you know questionable in terms of its environmental impact mm. right at the same time right. we are producing lots and lots of food products mm -hmm. so those are to me those are the sort of more interesting tensions than whether or not GMOs are toxic or something for human health. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I always acknowledge, you know, there's very valid ethical questions about whether or not we should even be doing this. And some people, you know, hold, hold these very, um, very dear, and we can't ignore that. That's mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's definite advocates. Um, I think you know if you if you just say GMOs, <laughs> sometimes people forget exactly genetically modified right. organisms, right? Yes. Yeah. And so the worry on the part of some is, should we be genetically modifying right crops, and would that cause some kind of um, either allergic or toxic effect in the plant that would maybe cause cancer or other kinds of health problems. And, um, and occasionally you will see papers that are published that say, yes, you know, these rats fed GMO corn have cancers and tumors at, you know, scary rates. Um, and, but we, we've been eating these things since the 80s, 1980s. Mm. And yes, we have a definite link between food and poor health outcomes, but that tends to be with what we eat, right? The mm -hmm. type of food we eat. Yeah. But again, um, and, and there's, I, I don't know of any um, really credible publications that have linked a toxic effect. I mean, or whenever you, whenever you um, modify a plant, whether it's through genetic engineering or traditional breeding, there's always the potential that there might be some kind of new allergen that is created. That's always there. And, and so um, scientists are trained to screen for those and, mm. and hopefully catch them. But mm. that, that risk is, is also there with traditional breeding. Mm -hmm. And so um, 
not necessarily unique to, to GMOs. So genetically modified organism, GMO, is, is, is just an acceleration of what's already been happening with crop breeding, or is it a different, quote-unquote, animal? No. <laughs> it, it is a different animal in that in, you can take a gene from p- potentially a completely different species and insert it into your target crop. Right, and so that's new, and uh, I mean historically, we we would cross relatives, <laughs> right? Different mm-hmm. grasses that might be, you know, um, uh, just margin, you know, distantly related, uh, and and then and use that to create a new combination that might be of interest to us. But but this, the technology of being able to take a gene from a fish and put it into a soybean, for example, is is totally new. And I think that's what worries people. Is that happening? Yes. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, that's pretty radical, you know. Yeah. Compared to crop breeding, that's pretty radical. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Um, that general type of thing yeah, is, yeah. is happening. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. But you say this is, we've been eating GMO crops for quite a while. We have. We have, and uh, at this point, ninety percent of corn, soybeans, cotton, um, canola are, are genetically modified, yeah. and the, and and they food products made out of those are in almost everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be, and I, I might be totally wrong in this, and I'm vaguely have a vague impression that there's a different attitude in Europe, for example, toward GMOs. It's more precautionary. More precautionary. More precautionary. Mm-hmm. And, and so, but a lot of it focuses on the environmental impacts that I alluded to okay. earlier. And so a big study in Europe actually um, associated a negative effect between GMO crops and bird species diversity. And that might seem surprising, but basically... Uh, if you're using Roundup-ready corn and soybeans, it makes it much easier to control the weeds. So you mm-hmm. have a much cleaner field, and the birds were relying on those weedy fields <laughs> to, mm-hmm. for their, their food. So so as soon as you remove that resource, the, the bird population crashes. And so, mm-hmm. so that's, I think, those kinds of concerns have been at the forefront of the debate in Europe. Not that the health concerns have also been, because I think it's just natural for people to go... Um, whoa, this is weird. I, I don't, is it safe? Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's very natural. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it does make sense. Yeah. 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 Um, so back to my narrow question, then we'll move on. Absent everything else, if you just look at yield, <laughs> GMOs might, you know, might be seen as a very good thing. GMOs could pretend, I mean, I think there's a good case to be made that we might, that that there's a place for GMOs in a sustainable agriculture future. Okay. And the BT gene might be one of them, right? We can take this toxin, natural toxin, it's produced by uh, bacteria, insert it into corn, uh, and then we no longer have to spray as much, right? Right. Um, but all these things break down if you overuse them. So, yeah. so there has, uh, we can't rely on single tools. Uh, whenever yeah. we rely on a single tool, that sustainability comes into question. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that, that GMOs are the solution to our problems, I think that's definitely a stretch. Mm-hmm. Are, are there develop- I, would, I could imagine that over time, um, 
organisms would find a way around Roundup. Exactly, and they already are. Yeah. Yeah. So that so then what you know then what do we do? It's kind yeah. of an arms race, right? Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let, let's now take the blinders off and just admit <laughs> that everything is interconnected, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so I want to start on the problems with with non-sustainable and non-organic uh, agriculture. By the way, you say the two, organic and sustainable, are often linked in people's minds. Not necessarily so. We'll get to that as we go along. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you talk about? And this is a, a photograph that you had in your presentation that I only became more aware of a few weeks ago when I talked to uh, Mark Erex. Um, I can't remember his book. It's about uh, agriculture in uh, in the Central Valley in mm-hmm. California. Mm-hmm. And in his book, he had this famous photograph. I wonder if you could uh, describe this. Yes, it's it's a fo- photograph of a telephone pole um, with a series of markers on it showing the existence of uh, the, the former land elevation. Yeah. And then there's somebody standing next to the, fo- the, yeah. the telephone pole. And, and where the, the land, land has sunk. Where the land used to be was way up top of the telephone pole. Exactly. 30 feet or something. Yes. Which is just spectacular. Right. Which is maybe the wrong word. It is spectacular. <laughs> Al- alarming. It's alarming as well. Alarming. Yes. <laughs> and if you're you know, just living on this land, you, you're not realizing that it sunk that much. Mm-hmm. But if you look at that thing, that's 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 alarming. They're sucking out that aquifer, and I don't know what might happen. They're sucking out. They're sucking the water out of the aquifer, and the land is sinking to replace that vacuum that's left there. That space. And and we are not so so. What it's saying is that we are extracting water for irrigation, for possibly drinking water as well for all our uses that we need water from. We are extracting it at an at a pace that's greater than it's being resupplied. Mm. Yeah. So so it's a finite resource right. that's being depleted. Not sustainable. Right. right. No. Um, soil loss. And soil degradation. Right. These are problems. These are big problems, yes. Uh, it's wildlife, of course. Water pollution. Mm-hmm. Um, it, this is an interesting point you made in your presentation. Food prices are mirroring fossil fuel prices. What does that tell us? Well, that, right, the price of inputs, uh, inputs, agricultural inputs, uh, nitrogen and pesticides are made directly out of fossil fuels. And as fossil fuels uh, decrease, uh, become harder to extract, or the demand on them is <laughs> increases, uh, the price goes up, and hence the price of food goes up, because the, the, the price of nitrogen fertilizer goes up for the farmer. Yeah. I guess your attitude toward that would depend on where you are on fossil fuels? I don't know. Or, or is there another reason we should be concerned about that? Well, I think um, clearly we haven't run out of fossil fuels yet. And there's debate on where that's going to (laughs) happen. But it is going to happen eventually. And so if we're talking about sustainability in terms of um, hundreds of years, (laughs) it's going to be a a problem in the future. Yeah. Uh, So let's get into talking about that as well. Uh, Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to... uh, uh, get into talking about sustainability. What is it, mm-hmm. and how, and how much it's linked to organic? And you say it's not; they're not interchangeable terms. They are right? not interchangeable terms, even though that's how they're often used. Yeah. yeah. 
We're talking with uh, Jennifer Reeve, uh, who is associate professor in the Department of Plants, Soils, and Climate at Utah State University. She gave a presentation for Science and Rap series from College of Science uh, a while back titled, What is Organic and Sustainable Agriculture Anyway? We're talking about this more following this break. 50 years after the Apollo 11 moon landing, the head of NASA has his sights on another giant leap for mankind. Everybody who was alive when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon, they know exactly where they were when that day happened. My generation does not have that memory. I'm Mary Louise Kelly, NASA's plan to put a human on Mars. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Join us today from 3 to 6.30 on UPR. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, the Center for Persons with Disabilities, for sponsoring our news programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. Join the Nora Eccles Harrison Museum of Art in Utah Public Radio for the USU Sculpture Walk on the mornings of July 16th and July 30th. Registration begins at 9 a.m. with light refreshments, followed by a stroll across the USU Logan campus where you'll be introduced to several sculpture pieces with discussions led by the museum's Allison Decker and Emily Bird. We look forward to seeing you there. Ticket information is on our website. Just head to upr.org. UPR is everywhere you are with classical music programming, news, and information. Statewide through 36 channels worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app, UPR is only the push of a button away. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're talking with Jennifer Reeve. She's associate professor in the Department of Plant, Soils, and Climate at Utah State University. And uh, her research focuses on nutrient management and soil health in organic and integrated free fruit, uh, tree fruit, uh, vegetable, pasture, and grain systems. She gave a presentation in the Science and Wrap series a while back called, What is Organic and Sustainable Agriculture Anyway? Um, and we'll get into talking about this, but um, you say organic and sustainable, very much interchangeable in people's minds but we shouldn't think of them that way. Exactly. And and the reason is, is if we define uh, sustainable agriculture as organic agriculture or as permaculture or agroecology, uh, as we often do, what we're implying is that organic agriculture is the, the solution anywhere and everywhere at all points in time. And Clearly, that is a very tall order. <laughs> and so uh, as a scientist, and, and I'm not alone in this, you know, uh, Scientists have then attempted to define what sustainable agriculture is and come up with a um, four or five point list. And uh, that list is that to be sustainable, agriculture, first of all, needs to produce sufficient yield of good quality to meet our needs. It needs to be economically viable. Because if we're not making money, if a farmer is not making money, clearly that's not sustainable. And those two points are focus, you know, they become the major focus then of conventional farming. Uh, but then uh, the sustainability movement would ar uh, argue that we need to add on to that, that uh, in order to be sustainable, farming needs to be resource conserving and environmentally uh, friendly. And sometimes those two are combined, uh, but they are different. That's why I split them apart, as well as socially acceptable and just. 
right? In order to be sustainable, you need to be able to evaluate a farming system against these criteria, mm. almost with a little checkbox, yeah. right? So socially responsible, we're talking about fair trade. Is that the kind of thing we're talking about? Fair trade, mm. uh, are uh, exactly. Are the farmers receiving enough of a wage to to live on? Are the farm workers being paid enough of a way a living wage? Uh, is are people receiving health insurance and benefits or not? You know all these kinds of questions. Mm-hmm. As well as the vi- viability of rural communities, right? That comes into this as well, right? Yeah. Uh, so let, we'll we'll check these off as uh, check against these as we go along. So I want to talk about organic uh, now. Um, we were talking before we went on the air. I had the assumption most people do that organic started in the nineteen sixties as part of the whole counterculture movement. Mm-hmm. You're telling me that's wrong. Yes. It is wrong. And so organic actually started in the early 20th century. The first certified organic uh, movement was Demeter in 1928. And that was the biodynamic agriculture, which is very similar to organic agriculture. There's a few differences. And um, the early early concerns um, of people uh, promoting the need for a different kind of agriculture were concerns of soil health. And as we uh, were starting to move away from using manure and natural inputs um, and instead uh, talking about NPK and synthetic fertilizers and and mineral inputs, there was a concern among scientists as well as uh, the public of what would happen, what would would there be negative consequences on soil health. And and there were, um, that was the time when with the discovery of vitamins and the realization that food quality mattered, right? That you couldn't just eat anything and, and, and be healthy. And so this this whole idea that um, soil health and human health were linked emerged in, in the early 20th century and became linked with those early organic movements. And then it wasn't mm-hmm. until late in the 1960s that it became linked with the environmental movement and... Interesting. Yeah. Uh, so this this concern, so going from manure, I guess, pretty much all manure, right? Fertilization, yes. And then the, these these other you know uh, fertilizers were mm-hmm. developed. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's I mean that's a good development. Uh, this linkage between soil health and human health, at least a concern about that, right? Right. So idea and of interconnectedness. It's a very interesting idea and one that. Uh, has not been fully established. I think it's re- uh, it's come to the forefront of the the current debate of the benefits of organic agriculture. Um, are we, you know, food density? This idea of food density and mineral rich food, and you know that that somehow the soil does impact the health of of the food has 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 resurfaced in in the public debate as. Mm as something of importance and interest. And, and that really has its roots way back. And so it's interesting so to this is, remember that. This <laughs> is, right. Um, this is definitely part of the branding for our organic. It is. No, right? It You're, was. It, it's healthier for all those reasons you just said. Mm-hmm. And, and this idea that feed the soil, not the plant, right? That the, we need to feed the soil, take care of soil health, and everything else will fall into place. That was that was based on you know those early 
uh, organic pioneers and um, is still very much part of the branding today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and branding, important word there because the, this, the, the, the strict definitions are all about consumer trust. Right. Now, right. So, so mm-hmm. what are the strict definitions? What do you have to do? This is FDA or whatever the government agency is, right? The National Organic Board okay. uh, uh, is in charge of, of developing or was in charge of developing and now up, or updating the, the definitions of what you have to do, the criteria of what you have to do to be considered organic. And um, that in itself has become controversial because almost by necessity, it has to be a sort of checkbox style mm. thing, right? Yeah. And so, so one definition of organic farming is that you, you exclude a lot of synthetic inputs, right? And, and it becomes, uh, it, providing you exclude those inputs, that's kind of a low bar, mm-hmm. yeah. right? When the original definition, and that, to be fair, the, the original definition is in the larger um, organic law, but not so much in the, in, in the checklist of what you mm-hmm. have to do. So that larger definition is that organic farming is an ecological system, right? In order to compensate for taking away these inputs, you need to create an ecological system that will generate at least some of those properties internally. So natural pest control. Right. If you if you create a habitat that's diverse, that uh, will encourage beneficial insects, they will keep naturally keep the pests at bay as opposed to, you know, spraying everything mm-hmm. that that's the philosophy that that is at the heart of organic agriculture. But then when it translates into law, it's just um, these these pesticides are approved and these ones aren't mm-hmm. because it's not true that no pesticides are allowed in organic. The, the, the rule actually states that um, if, if something is natural, it's allowed and less disallowed. Mm. If something's synthetic, it's not allowed and less specifically allowed. Mm. So, so that's kind of um, – that – at least appears to be a long way away from an ecological system, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> More of a sliding scale. Exactly. Than the black and white that I thought it was. Exactly. Okay. And so then, then, then organic ag- but organic agriculture has to set a minimum standard, right? And, and there's, an, a, there's a case, a very good case to be made that, well, you can't, you can't define what an organic farm should be everywhere because it's going to look different in different environments. Hence, in order for this to be practical and, and in terms of enforcing it, we have to leave it quite vague uh, in terms of how you create your ecological system. And I think that's the goal, but the criticism has been that uh, instead, we've got this minimum threshold that really isn't up to what was in originally intended, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and that you could get by a certified organic with doing the minimum. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a, I had a, a picture in for my dissertation defense showing two strawberry fields and saying, "Can you tell them apart?" Mm-hmm. And the answer was no, just from looking at them. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, when we looked at the soil, you could tell them apart. Okay. So. Yeah. <laughs> so this is kind of narrow definition, sliding scale. That's what the law is now. Right. Um, so is is would there be a better way to do it? 
do you think? Better definitions, which would well, produce uh, clearer results? I'm not sure, because you have, to, you have to keep it simple. People complain it's too complicated as it is, right? And, uh, and so it, the rules have to be simple or no one can figure them out and no one can follow them. And, and yes, there are going to be instances when organic farms are maybe they're organic in terms of the rule of law, but not in terms of the spirit of an ecological farming system. But in order to be organic in the long term, you need to build in that complexity or you're not going to last very long. Mm -hmm. that's, mm -hmm. the, that's the reality, mm -hmm. right? The, the pesticides that are allowed um, in the organic rule are, are not very persistent. They can be toxic in the short term, but they're not very persistent. They're very expensive and they don't work very well. Mm. <laughs> and so if you're going to rely on that alone, you're not going to last very long. You're going to have to try and design a farming system that's more resilient against pest pressure. Mm. And then and that's where it becomes interesting again, right? Right. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Jennifer Reeve. Uh, she is associate professor in the Department of Plant Soils and Climate. And we're talking about organic and sustainable agriculture. We've established that uh, they're not necessarily the same thing. And I want to uh, talk a little bit about that. So organic, at least in the way we've defined it here, the, the legal definition, uh, is that sustainable in terms of the, the big picture? That That's an excellent question. Uh, I think the critics rightly say you can't link the term organic with, with sustainable necessarily because that implies that it's sustainable everywhere and anywhere. Uh, if we look at our five criteria, we can, we can compare a organic farm with a conventional farm and see how they compare against these five criteria. And so that's, what, that's the approach that scientists have taken and what we found is that there's very few truly sustainable farms, maybe none in terms of those, or those five criteria, mm. very few. And that applies to conventional and organic. And there's definitely examples of, of sustainable conventional farms and examples of sustainable organic farms. In terms of their specific strengths and weaknesses, Organic agriculture tends to be lower yielding. By how much depends on the crop and the location. But it can be anywhere from maybe zero, one to zero percent, nothing, or two to the, uh, percent, one to two percent, to as high as maybe 60 percent uh, yield, um, 60 percent of the yield, so a 40 percent yield loss, um, depending on the crop and the location. So conventional farming does better on yields. I mean, that's no surprise. They have a greater toolbox in terms of managing the potential problems. Uh, they've also had a much greater research base uh, level of support in terms of developing those tools. So I would argue that our current organic agriculture in terms of yields is not necessarily uh, optimized, mm. right? We, we could potentially do a lot better if we put more research money into developing um, more tools for organic farmers. 
when you compare the economic viability, uh, it tends to be a mixed picture. It is definitely the case that a lot of farms that would have otherwise gone out of business managed to find a niche market in organic agriculture. And so for many, many farmers, organic agriculture has been a lifesaver economically because it re represented a, a niche market with higher prices. Uh, and they weren't able, and these tended to be the medium-sized and smaller farms that were going out of business because they couldn't compete, right? And so, um, and for that reason, there's a lot of support for organic agriculture across the political spectrum, you know, and, and um, because people recognize how vital it is for maintaining the smaller-sized um, fam traditional family farms. Uh, at the same time, um, as organic agricultures become more mainstream, it's made it harder to compete within the organic movement, right? And so mm. there have been casualties there and, and maybe a shift towards larger organic farms. And, and yeah. as well as maybe very smaller ones. And that's where the local movement comes in and, mm -hmm. and knowing your farmer because as a reaction against that, the market forces pushing organic farmers in the larger, more impersonal direction. Mm. You know? I guess in illustration, nothing's in a vacuum. No. Ever. No, right? no. So economic forces, <laughs> political forces, cultural forces. Right. Um, right. All, all converging. Yeah. Uh, by the way, is uh, big agriculture, or I could see, uh, you know, maybe these, these huge companies using mostly conventional methods, I would imagine, but if it's a higher price niche, seeing that we can make some money, jumping into organic as well. Absolutely. And they have. Mm -hmm. They have. And they often do it very well. Yeah, because they have the resources and the know-how, and and that, but that obviously has they have the general farming know-how and the resources to make it work, and and then that puts definite. How can a smaller farmer compete with that? Yeah, and then the question is, is organic agriculture living up to its original or cultural social sustainability? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. That that part of it then comes into question. Right. That's interesting to me that there's a trickle down or trickle up, right? And, and the, the economic forces are going to rush into any market, including right. Right. organic. Yes. yes. Uh, and it's all bound up in our history as well. You know, in, in the U.S., you know, for most families, you only have to go back three or four generations. You hit a farmer. Mm-hmm. Including my family, my my grandfather was a farmer. Mm -hmm. Maybe today he'd be doing our organic. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting. Uh, so let's take another break, and when we come back, I want to talk about. I want to have you get into some science. In the talk, you talk about the nitrogen cycle. That'd be interesting for you to take right. us through. Um, but there's a key question in this uh, paper that you sent me, um, where you say that the the science is interestingly, distressingly sparse in, in establishing a uh, direct link, scientifically proven mm -hmm. between, I guess, organic or what we think of as healthy food production mm -hmm. and our health. And human health. And human health. That is, that is correct. There's actually a strong link, strong scientific evidence for environmental benefits, but the majority of consumers are more interested in 
surveys tell us the majority of consumers are more interested in human health benefits. And there's a, a lack of research to confirm that, mm -hmm. even though it's a widespread assumption. So the organic whatever I'm eating may not be healthier than the regularly produced? Right. <laughs> we are. We can uh, talk about what that means, yeah. and and because that's also a the different components of, yeah. of health. We'll I think we'll succeed in this program in angering conventional <laughs> agriculture and the organic community as well. That's the problem I have. In yes, every day I can't keep anyone happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy to help you to to. <laughs> to do that, uh, but it's is very interesting, and and it's I mean it's 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 good to know, mm -hmm. need to know, you know as much knowledge as we can get. We're talking with Jennifer Reeve. She's associate professor in the uh, Department of Plant Soils and Climate at Utah State University. We're talking about sustainable agriculture and organic agriculture. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU Summer Piano Festival, presenting the Isola Olson Piano Duo, including illustration by Chuck Landvetter and sculpture by stonecarver Miles Howell. Tuesday, July 16th at 7.30 at the USU Russell Wanless Performance Hall. Information at music.usu.edu. On the next Radio Lab. Take your marks! Why do Kenyans always win all those races? The Kenyans have done it again. One, two, and three. And what happens to New York City's poop after it's pooped? About 1.3 billion gallons every single day. And, and, why aren't kids afraid of quicksand anymore? Well, what are you afraid of? The alien in Pacific Rim. That would be totally more scary. We'll have some answers on the next Radio Lab. Tomorrow morning at 10 on UPR. Join Utah Public Radio and KCPW's Jazz Time host, Steve Williams, for our summer concert series. He'll be there introducing our performances by Ryan Conger Trio and the Blue Blazers Band on the beautiful side of the vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms, July 28th. See you there. Ticket information at upr.org. I don't want to see nobody but you. I don't want to see nobody but you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about organic and sustainable agriculture. And our guest is Jennifer Reeve. She's associate professor in the Plant, Soils, and Climate Department in the College of Agriculture at Utah State University. By the way, we'll continue a discussion on several of these themes on Thursday. And we'll have Rosalind McCann, Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist, on with us, uh, along with a couple of uh, colleagues uh, from the Moab area. To be talking about organic uh, farming and, and uh, related issues. Um, so uh, we established before the break that there is not as much direct science uh, as we thought uh, linking, um, I guess, soil health, organic farming with human health. There, there are definite benefits to organic farming, though. There are, yes. And so the... The real strengths of, of organic farming um, are seen when we do look at the soil. So, so if we look at that continuum, is there a link between farming, soil health, and human health? There's definitely a link between farming and the type of farming, farm management, and soil health. And um, organic farming definitely has beneficial effects on soil health. And as... <coughs> 
and and often on environmental uh, outcomes as well, although that is a little bit more variable. But but the soil health relationship management link between soil health is, is pretty strong, and it's not so surprising because if you if you add manure or compost, carbon-based compounds, com, uh, compounds. Uh, if you rotate your crops and you use cover crops, prevent erosion, and you you create more soil organic matter, which improves physical aggregate stability and water infiltration and water retention and nutrient retention and helps prevent nutrient loss and um, microbial diversity and disease resistance, right, the, or resilience, the, the disease suppressive abilities of soils, so meaning you need fewer pesticides on those kinds of healthy soils. There's a link between management and those kinds of outcomes and organic management uh, because they're relying on these carbon-based inputs. They're feeding the soil. They're feeding those microbes. They're generating this rich humus material that everyone loves. And, and so we know that. The, the next part of that question, though, was, is there a relationship between soil health and human health? And that seems logical, but that is the part of it that's been surprisingly difficult to, to prove. And that was, that was the original uh, assumption of the early organic pioneers, that yes, we're going to use organic farming to create healthy soils, and those healthy soils will result in healthy animals, healthy humans, and a healthy environment. And, uh, and so I actually then decided to look at this a few years ago and uh, uh, conduct a literature review to see where does the science actually stand on answering that question? And uh, again, so I I found that the the literature is really quite strong in terms of the soil health benefits of organic farming. But when we come to the link or the positive potential linkages between soil health and human health, it's much difficult, much harder to prove, and there's really a lack of of research. Doesn't mean that there isn't a link but it, it's been harder to prove, and there's lots of questions. There's one reason that was surprising. We were talking about this before the program. Um, you might think that uh, if a soil is contaminated, right? Obvious, obviously going to hurt your health. Exactly. But maybe not so, at least not severely. Well, no, I think that... The if a soil is contaminated, there's likely going to be negative outcomes if you are if you are eating food produced just from that soil, mm -hmm. right? So if you are if your local soil is contaminated with arsenic or cadmium and all your food comes from that, so this is this could be a a, a worry if if we're talking about very localized food systems, right? Because contamination then gets magnified in, in the food supply if all your food is coming from that contaminated area. Uh, in the U.S., we tend to eat food from a wide range of places, and so the contamination then becomes diluted. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. And uh, That gets into uh, where my thoughts went next was uh, I think we don't, tend to know where our food comes from. We don't. Go to the supermarket, and it's a cornucopia. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> Foods are available out of season. Right. It's wonderful. 
it's wonderful. It's also a little bit or quite a bit disturbing mm -hmm. if we think about it, because if we think of the origins of the word agriculture, it's, you know, our culture is 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 intricately intertwined with our food and our farming and the landscape. And with the advent of supermarkets, we've lost that. And, and that people rightly say that, that that's a real loss. And how can we try and recreate that? And and that's you know, the whole local food movement and the and, and organic farming has been part of that that really um, making that case and rightfully so. Mm. Uh, no, it seems like a big part of that local food movement and farmers markets, um, cultural, social. But is, are there health benefits there as well? So there's clear cultural, social benefits and economic benefits, right? Because yeah. you're retaining more of the economic dollars in within your community. Uh, there's health benefits in terms of the freshness of the produce. Mm. So if your produce is harvested that morning and delivered to the farmer's market and you get it home, fresh is better. There's, there's no question about that. The question then becomes, is, is organic fresh better than conventional fresh, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? If, as most small farms that sell at farmer's markets at least use some organic practices, the two might sort of get confounded. But, mm. but if we want to be you know, carefully look at it, we have to say, is organic local fresh healthier than conventional local fresh? That's, that, that case becomes harder to prove. It mm. doesn't mean we can't necessarily, and we can get into the where, where organic and conventional food are different and where they're not. Yeah, let's do, because uh, that's an important question. Right. So um, the health, you know, and healthy food can really be... Uh, broken down into three different components. The first we alluded to is toxicity. And so is my food contaminated with something and pesticides or or some naturally occurring heavy metal or something, right? And the evidence is actually quite clear that there are greater numbers and concentrations of residues, pesticide residues on conventional foodstuffs. Not surprising because they use more pesticides and a greater number of them. Uh, it is quite surprising to some that organic produce is not pesticide free. You know, we have drift, we have, you know, um, mm -hmm. legacy effects in the environment. And so, but, but there are um, lower concentrations and fewer uh, different types of residues generally present on organic food. So if that's your concern, buy organic. Mm -hmm. Uh, the it's still controversial though on whether that whether the you know the levels present on conventional foods are of concern. Many would ar argue they're not. Mm. Whether we have really done those trials, <laughs> mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, why do you think there is a lack of science in that? Those linkages. Because we can't feed pesticides to humans to see if, the, if okay. there's going to be a right. We can't Good do point. those. Good we point. can't do those experiments. Yeah. We have to try and figure it out indirectly, and that those kinds of population studies are notoriously difficult to do. Mm -hmm. There was a very large one that just came out of France, looking at you know as part of these longitude long-term health surveys where they have people um, detail 
what they eat and all aspects of their life cycle, lifestyle, and then they call them in maybe every six months or so to for detailed interviews to confirm that. This paper was just published, and they found uh, that there might be a link between pesticide exposure and from food and mm -hmm. cancer. Now mm -hmm. we know there's definitely a link between worker applicator exposure and cancer, but but this paper suggests that there might be a link between food contamination. Obviously, it's just one study, right. <laughs> so we have to be very cautious. Mm, yeah. We just have about uh, three minutes left. I wonder, you know, bring this full circle. What do you have recommendations, you know, Joe or Jill consumer? Um, we, we've successfully muddied the water here, right? <laughs> That's kind of what you do, right? And right, to, right. Hey, we need, we need to, you know, it's good to know, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, but in the end, choosing our food mm -hmm. um, on a consumer level. And then B, you know, wh wh what should we do for, for uh, you know, the, the, the macro look, uh, sustainability? Mm -hmm. So fresh is best. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about that. Uh, vitamins degrade and wilted produce that's been harvested when it's half ripe and then transported or stored for long periods of time generally does not contain as high a level of um, vitamins as a freshly harvested ripe tomato, right? So fresh is best. So, um, and then I think there's definitely a big case to be made for supporting your local farmers and your your local culture and your local economy. Uh, whether we do that to the extent of growing tomatoes year-round in greenhouses, that becomes <laughs> that comes questionable sustainably because the the carbon footprint of that is pretty huge compared to bringing those tomatoes in on a truck from somewhere like Mexico. So so there's a complex picture there, uh, but but fresh is best, and know your farmer are definitely um, good <laughs> good things to live by. And at the same time, you know, it tends to be more it tends to be cheaper if you can purchase things locally as opposed mm -hmm. to buying organic in the marketplace. Um, if you're worried about pesticides, if that's of a concern to you, that would be another reason to choose organic. If you're worried about soil health, that would be a reason to choose organic. Mm. You just have to be careful not to label organic sustainable because mm -hmm. there are areas where organic falls short. We just have to be honest about that. Mm -hmm. That's really all I'm saying, yeah. right? And then what about this sustainability? We just have a couple minutes left. Um, population continues to grow. You're going to have to have, continue to have high yield. Mm-hmm. Can that coexist with those other factors we talked about with sustainability? That's a big question. I, I personally think that we may have to alter our diet significantly. So all these, all these calculations of needing 50% extra food uh, rely, are based on our current diet. But um, meat is very resource intensive to, to produce. And I don't know that... I'd advocate everyone becoming vegan or that we have to be all vegetarian, but we might we may have to eat a lot less meat in order to produce enough food in the future. And uh, and that could be beneficial from the health perspective too, because mm -hmm. I think 
you know, eating too much meat and cholesterol and heart problems are linked as well. So, so um, a more plant-based diet could be good for the environment and for human health. Mm. Good place to end the uh, discussion. We've been uh, talking with Jennifer Reeves. She's associate professor in the Plant, Soils, and Climate Department at Utah State University. And she gave a uh, talk for Science Unwrapped in the College of Science a while back called What is Organic and Sustainable Co- uh, Agriculture? Anyway, uh, you can find that uh, talk um, by uh, pulling up uh, um, research, I think, .usu.edu. Or the way I got there, I just Googled Jennifer Reeve, Organic <laughs> and Sustainable. Uh, you can find that and much else. Uh, we'll continue this discussion on these topics on Thursday with uh, Rosalind McCann, uh, who is uh, an associate professor uh, with Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist. Uh, and that'll be coming up on Thursday. Tomorrow, we'll talk about uh, a sort of forgotten pioneer in uh, Utah's environment or, or America's environmental uh, movement, uh, Grinnell, America's environmental pioneer in his restless uh, drive. Uh, that is coming up uh, tomorrow. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival in Logan, Utah with the musical Mary Poppins, July 6th through August 3rd. The kids are in desperate need of a new nanny. A mysterious and sophisticated woman appears and transforms their world. Info and tickets at utahfestival.org. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org. UPR is made possible today with a program day sponsorship from Cindy Dewey in celebration of Marge Newmeyer on her 91st birthday.